Hey, hey, everybody, it's Observation time. It is time once again for another installment of Observations. I am Rob Liefeld. I am taking you on this crazy journey that I started when I started pulling off comic books from the spinner rack in 1974-1975. This became my passion, and I have been all about the comic books ever since. I wanted to write them. I wanted to draw them. I uh, really had no other choice. Wasn't going to be a lawyer. Wasn't going to be a doctor. Wasn't going to be a plumber. Uh, Comics were pretty much my entire option in terms of some sort of career path. So they have provided me great escape, great inspiration. Uh, they have moved me deeply. I love the, the, the language of comic books. I don't need a comic book to be a movie to love it. I just love it because it's a comic book. It, 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 it gave me an entry point with which to unleash my imagination on pages, follow in the footsteps of the people who I love so much, like Jack Kirby, like Frank Miller, like John Byrne, like so many who came before. We have spent so many episodes walking and talking about comic books, how they affect pop culture. I say time and again, the past informs the future and boy, does it ever. And in the last installment, we started a multi-part walk through the history of an enormous event that hit the comic books industry that I was fortunate to be a part of called Heroes Reborn. The Heroes Reborn event came about as we covered, quick recap, from Marvel Comics wanting to get their longtime Marvel icons, the ones that were there when they launched, Captain America, who they had brought back from Simon and Kirby's uh, vision and, 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 and installed him into the Avengers lineup, which made the Avengers even more cool when the Avengers launched and, and an issue, you know, for that they, they, they grab Cap and he becomes, for the rest of time, part of their legacy and their lineup. The Fantastic Four, the Avengers, Captain America, Iron Man, these were um, outside of Spider-Man the and, and, and the X-Men, which was truly, in back in those days, never as successful as these titles. They were the launch pad for Marvel Comics. They were the way that readers came into the Marvel Universe and eventually embraced it, making it a more successful universe than their chief rival, DC Comics. These books in the 90s fell on hard times and terrible sales. I I go back to this because without the terrible sales, there is no need to recruit myself and Jim Lee, who had left the company four years prior to start our own independent vision, independent imprint called Image Comics. Captain America is selling the worst of all of these books, but not not by a whole lot. They're all kind of in the toilet. The Avengers, Fantastic Four, Captain America and Iron Man are in the 26... 28,000, 24,000 range. These are barely breaking even. It's kind of a blemish on the Marvel ledger that these once proud icons in 1995, 1996 are scraping the bottom of the barrel. People would rather buy Ghost Rider, Ghost Rider and Punisher uh, and, and, and Venom than, than any of these traditional icons. So Marvel comes to Jim Lee and myself. We negotiate for a year a deal that will commit our entire creative efforts, our names, our talents, our, our, our artistic uh, gifts, our, our you know visions. We are going to reboot these characters. We are going to do our very best to restore them to 
uh, I would say former glory, but here's where it gets really interesting. For 15 plus maybe 20 years, so we're talking a solid two decades, at least 15 years. These were nobody's idea of a good time. Uh, Fantastic Four really fell off after John Byrne did his like nearly four-year run. It had a brief kind of uh, revisit when Walt Simonson came on the book, but Walt was adamant that he was not going to retrace steps with the Lee and the Kirby stuff, and he wanted to make all new concepts, and it was not as successful as you would have thought, given that it was Walt Simonson, but he had definitely a a, an idea that he wanted to do more kind of science exploration and and less uh, Doctor Doom and Mole Man and and Galactus and Silver Surfer all the stuff that we would want Walt Simonson to do he chose not to he wanted to go on a science path and eventually uh, to, to to reignite interest in the book Walt created a Fantastic Four uh, multi part story that had Wolverine Ghost Rider uh, Spider Man and the Hulk become the Fantastic Four so so it was like gimmicked out to get people to get on board. And Captain America, also, uh, under John Byrne, when I was a kid in 1980, was had a glorious year-long run. And then uh, it really never uh, was Mama's number one franchise or, or a top kind of franchise. Following that, uh, Mike Zeck did some great work. Then Mark Grunewald goes on his 10-year run, uh, of which... Uh, there, there's a peak in the late 80s, real early 90s with Ron Lim. The book is going bi-weekly. That's my favorite stuff that they did together. Uh, it, it's some some really fun comics, but again, not, not top tier, not stuff that people are climbing to get over. Same with the Avengers. From like 19, the mid-80s on, all of these franchise kind of go to the back of the line. As the X-Line surges, as Spider-Man expands, you get four, five Spider-Man titles. You get eight, nine, ten X-Men titles. That they are crowding out the original icons who are not anybody's idea of, you know, a great career move. Everybody in the '90s is scrambling to make a difference. They they they, they want they want to get more bang for their buck. Either they're going to create their own character, own it, and 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 uh, try and exploit their talents in that way, or or they want to stick to the top tier stuff. They don't want to move away from the top-tier franchises, you know, which are the X-Men, the Spider-Man books, over at DC, the Batman books. So it wasn't as if Jim and I had been offered these golden opportunities to, hey guys, these are titles that are at the top of the charts, and we want you to just take over the controls and keep, you know, flying the friendly skies, because these titles fly above everything else. That is not the case. These case were crawl these books, these titles were crawling on their stomachs uh in the comics industry. They 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 were struggling. They were very much near cancellation numbers. So we were kind of brought in as the emergency crew. I loved it. I love Captain America. I love the Avengers. I immediately had so many stories that I wanted to tell with these characters. But the business dealing took a long time because uh, Jim and myself drove as hard a bargain as we could, given that our time and our creative endeavors were going to be taken away from our own mini comic book empires, and we had a sense of what we were worth, and we knew what they wanted to, uh, you know, the results they wanted out of this and the pressure that was going to put on us. And again, Marvel, this is the time when Marvel Comics owns Fleer. They bought a trading card company. They bought Panini, an Italian you know, stick, sticker company, which was a big international 
purchase. They bought a distributor called Heroes World so that they would distribute all their comics anymore, no longer with Diamond or Capital, who was going out of business. They had Toy Biz. They had an animation studio. Marvel was taking on assets. This is important to remember because this is a make-it-break-it uh, situation for them as they continue to pile on debt every time you take on a company. The ledger takes on that company's debt. You take on those employees. If you don't slash them, you're now adding all those employees to your bottom line. So, so Marvel's overhead is growing during this time. We are part of the intellectual creative property part, which is going to try and make a line of comics sell better. So not at the expense of the X-Men or Spider-Man. There is a belief that Marvel gets most people's first dollars. I became aware of this in the late 80s uh, when the Batman movie launched in 1989 and drove people to stores. People went in curious about Batman and Marvel has the data. A, a good buddy of mine named Sven Larsen, who was the marketing director at Marvel for multiple years, would show me, Rob, people entered stores looking for Batman product and bought one Batman book and five Marvel comics on their way exiting the stores. Marvel was thrilled. They believed Batman was the was the tide that lifted all the boats, all the ships, but most of the ships that were lifted uh, in the bay were Marvel comics. And Marvel believed, that's where you get the term Marvel zombie, that getting Marvel fans to put more money towards Cap, Iron Man, Fantastic Four, and Avengers was not going to dent Spider-Man and X-Men in any way. Those were your go-to titles. Those were the titles that everyone was already in the process of picking up. You're going to take your money maybe from image titles, maybe from DC titles. Wherever you're going to do it, you, they believe you have a finite amount of money that you spend every month, and you redistribute those dollars. They were planning on now, by investing in us and getting this family of titles back up and running, that they were going to take four more titles. Four more of your purchases were going to go onto their side of the ledger and away from wherever else you, the consumer, was spending those dollars. So we are set about to, 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 to pursue this with a Marvel Comics in New York, New York City. We are going to do this on our own. We have been outsourced. We have complete creative control. We don't need uh, them to okay anything outside of our original ideas and plans, which were part of the contracts we signed. We were able to produce these books with the budgets that Marvel gave us, because on top of paying Jim and I, we negotiated budgets per books, and they were very, very well budgeted. Uh, I, I want to say in, in the in the vicinity of $40,000 an issue was what we were given to create each comic, on top of the money that Jim and I were paid contractually to be part of this, and again, our signing bonuses, which were, important to note, non-applicable. Those were not part of our deal. They were in an addition to so it was an exciting time. We were we we I felt like we had earned it. Uh, again, my my story with Marvel. I had created Cable and Deadpool and Domino, and X Force, and given the moniker of Warpath to James Proudstar's youngest brother. Um, did I say Shatterstar? Did I say Feral? Uh, Strife, the 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 Mutant Liberation Front. Uh, so many different characters, and had taken New Mutants from the lowest selling book in the X-Men line to the top selling book in the X-Men line. Okay, that was my career trajectory at that time. I could um, take a franchise and I could flip it. Just like you see on these shows 
I'm going to take over this shanty house. I'm going to put new frames on it. I'm going to put new floors. I'm going to put new cabinets and I'm going to flip it. And you're going to think this is your new dream home. That's the business that I was in. I loved the challenge of taking this stuff and flipping it and making it more commercially, you know, appealing. And, and, and that is where I derived so much of my energy. But again, it wasn't because Cap was all shiny and new at this point. Cap was tired and dusty. And somewhere between Cap Wolf, my mind fuzzed. And I forgot that right before I agreed to do this, he was in armor. And he was like Cap Armor. And he kind of looked like a, a, a character that Marvel had been publishing called the NFL Super Pro. But again, the Marvel Comics that was uh, in New York at the time, the editorial board flipped out over this. The great part about being able to do this podcast with you guys is that I get feedback the next day almost immediately, and already a number of editors who were at Marvel at that time commented on the first part of this Heroes Reborn installment and said, man, Rob, you got it down. You got what was happening in New York down to the finest details. You reflected exactly what was going on. I was there. Uh, there were fans that were at the Mile High Comics signing that I spoke of that Jeff Loeb and I did to commemorate the release of Captain America number one. The guy goes, man, did you have pictures from that? That place was packed. Again, reception to this was incredible. Right before I uh, came on this morning, I, I read some more comments from you guys, some more feedback. People on the East Coast and the Midwest, they, they worked as managers of these stores. They said the excitement and the reception for these books was off the chain. Um, you know, we brought our best efforts to the page. We did not uh, phone this in one iota. But the idea at New York, again, going back to the, the, the temperature of the time, was one one guy stood up. He stood up and said, I'm not going to take it. His name's Ralph Macchio. He's the editor. And he said, I can put together a team that can convince you, uh, Marvel, to not go to these West Coast guys, to not outsource, to not, you know, give your budgets. Because the fear was, if these books work, they're going to give more and more and more. And let me confirm right now, that was absolutely the idea. Those projects were on the table. You're going to have to keep listening to find out how this all developed. But they, he immediately, obviously with Mark Grunewald's blessing, Mark Grunewald exited the book after almost a decade. They welcomed Mark Wade from The Flash and Ron Garney, who had been a great journeyman guy for them, plugged in a lot of holes. He did work that was above his station at that time, out of his mind. He just elevated his work, and yet the, the sales didn't move. Uh, I watched it closely and impacted me the most. Fantastic Four and Avengers and Iron Man were just kind of, they were grounding those planes. They were landing them and decommissioning them until Heroes Reborn. But man, Ralph Macchio thought, I am going to show that we can do Captain America. You didn't. Ralph, let me just tell you here, uh, 24 years later, that didn't work out for you. But it was nice. Those books were good. It was fine. It definitely elevated what I was following. I was not following Cap Wolf or Captain America NFL Super Pro Armor. I was following this really good run by Wade and Garney. No matter. I had a story. I had a very specific story. Uh, given that we were going to get to reboot these from ground, uh, gr you know, ground zero, I had... Uh, had an idea for Cap that was more in line with the great sci-fi author, Philip K. Dick, uh, who, who it, it just had written so many amazing sci-fi stories, uh, that I have read in my youth, that I have experienced in adapted works. And 
Also, at the time, The X-Files was burning up America. It was the hottest show. My wife and I, we never missed it. We saw it with friends. Who wanted to know what, you know, Mulder and Scully were doing on any given week? But they had a really interesting approach to science, to mysteries, uh, the, 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 the way that they kind of came up against sci-fi tropes. And then you had the, all the different government layers of agencies that were trying to throw them off the tracks, the smoking man, so much cool government stuff. So my idea with Steve Rogers and Captain America was that Cap, having received the super soldier serum, never needed to be uh, trapped in a giant ice cube found by a floating submarine by the Avengers. That is the origin that he had at the, his entire time under Marvel. Obviously, being in suspended animation, Frozen is why he retained his youthfulness, and, 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 and that is the way they explained his kind of Rip Van Winkle re-entry that he had missed all these years. I decided, no, the Super Soldier, super soldier Serum itself would retard his age and give him uh, just regressive aging. He would not age on any level the way that we age. The, the skin, his, his genes, his entire biomolecular structure would be completely altered and he would look young for hundreds of years. Well, in my story, he opposes the U.S. government who are going to drop a nuke uh, in the same way that they did in history on Japan, and his opposition to this and to Eisenhower and to every move that the military and the industrial military complex was making at that time uh, got him decommissioned, mind wiped, and for the last, at this point, you know, 40, 50 years, he was being uh, put in different controlled environments out in the real world, and when he would, the memories would come back to him and he would slowly reawaken his consciousness would take they would just decommission him again wipe him and put him in a new existence and there was all this dark years and dark period where we don't know exactly what happened to him and if that sounds familiar to you it is it is exactly the same trope that they used for the winter soldier 10 years after i did this in steve with steve rogers and captain america nick fury is behind this he and uh the birth of S.H.I.E.L.D. Are, 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 you know, walk hand in hand with everything that happened to Steve Rogers. Captain America does not even appear in his costume in my first issue outside of a flashback in the first two pages of the book. Because to me, it's about Steve Rogers and it's about reuniting him with his Excalibur, his Holy Grail, which is the S.H.I.E.L.D. And the S.H.I.E.L.D. had been uh, lost when he disappeared. And so many people who fought alongside Cap, his partners in the military, in these agencies, in these organizations, they were not told what happened to him because upon the presidential order, he disappeared. He was decommissioned and basically put in a uh, uh, an, kind of an environment like a witness protection program, except he did not know his environment because they would just keep mind wiping him and the people around him. I utilized this very uh, interesting concept that Marvel always had with S.H.I.E.L.D. and Captain America called Life model decoys, life model decoys, LMDs, and they were basically synthetic androids that you would, you and I would not pick up on, that they were not real whatsoever. So he has a wife and a kid, and he works at a blue-collar existence at a factory, but, but Steve Rogers is lost. He is lost in this story. He is, 
not comfortable with where he is in life, and he is haunted by memories and dreams of a different life, of a different existence. And through the uh, the, the first issue, when our lovely uh, cook that, that posed as a cook, he was a CIA guy, he worked alongside Steve Rogers. Um, his last name's Wilson. He uh, had ha he has had the shield in his possession for all these years, and he has recognized Steve Rogers on the streets. He knows that this is the man that disappeared years ago, and he uh, interacts with him, asks to arrange a meeting with him, and he leads him to where they will give him and restore his shield to him. And, it, and it's a cool scene where he goes to Wilson's house, and they go into the attic, and he opens the trunk, and he says, I've been waiting to give this back to you for years. I've held on to it. I didn't want it to fall into the wrong hands. Wilson is a uh, kindly, elderly, um, very, at this point, small in stature, and standing next to to um, to, to, to Cap. He's almost Yoda-esque, uh, the, the way I drew him. Um, he's a small, sweet little black man. I look back at the at the, uh, the pages I drew, and I mean, he could have been John Lewis, the way I drew him. Um, uh, uh, and, and he had been looking to reunite this artifact, this, this symbol of freedom with this man if he ever happened upon him again. More importantly, he wanted to keep it out of enemy hands. The shield obviously is, you know, made of some great uh, alloys and secret, uh, secret ingredients that they didn't want falling into the wrong hands. Now, Wilson is a spy, and that is your reason with which he could evade so many people tracking him and knowing exactly where the shield went. He took it off the radar immediately, and so for 50 years it has been wrapped up under blankets in a giant chest waiting for him to restore it, because when he sees Steve, he thinks he's seen a ghost. He can't believe it. This is the basis of Captain America number one, but it is against a backdrop of a movement in 1996 in this comic book. And here is the crazy part that is sweeping... Uh, across the country in the story, in the comic book, there is a charismatic figure named Alexander the Great who is uniting uh, the nation's youth, white Aryan youth, and, be, and, and uh, recruiting them for something called the World Party. And the World Party is, in fact, a cover for Nazi, a new rise of a Nazi party. They are white supremacists. He is a white supremacist. They are secretly Nazis. And uh, the audience surrogate that we walk into this with is the brother, the troubled brother, of who will become our new Bucky. My Ricky Barnes with an I, R-I-C-K-I, Ricky Barnes, is, uh, is, is, you know, comes from the Bronx, has a brother, and, and, and his friends are, in, are into bad stuff. That uh, they're, they're played as kind of skinhead punks. Um, and they tell her they're off to this rally at the world party. And she's like, what are you talking about? You can't have fallen in with them. And we see that we meet Alexander the Great and his operatives before he goes on stage to rally his white youth. And he talks about them taking their rightful place. They are superior. And if this sounds familiar to everything that we have been experiencing in the modern world in the last three years, trust me, I am haunted by it as well. Cap is battling white supremacists who are a cover for the Nazis in Heroes Reborn. That is my five-issue story. Red Skull is the man pulling the strings behind it. Alexander, Gr Alexander the Great is Masterman, a, an awesome character I encountered in the pages of The Invaders, 
which was a Marvel comic book that uh, told the stories of the World War II heroes that Marvel had. Cap, Bucky, Human Torch, his uh, sidekick Toro, also a flaming youth. Uh, so so you, had, you had Human Torch and then a younger version of him called Toro. So both of them, you know, were engulfed in fire and flame. And uh, and then you had Prince Namor. And along the way, they had different uh, different uh, characters that, that, that aligned with them. Um, but that one of the big bad guys that they faced was a guy named Masterman. And he was the Ubermensch, the perfect, you know, uh, Aryan Superman that Hitler created, a, 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 uh, a, a more dangerous uh, mirror of, of our version of Captain America. It was Hitler's Superman and made for some great stories. I always wanted to do a story where they uh, battle each other in the modern day. And I found my outlet with this story. And so you have two super soldiers on a collision course. The Red Skull and the Nazi party are rising again. They talk again how they've planted these seeds. And Alexander is this charismatic speaker that speaks to these uh, kind of uh, uh, disgruntled youth who are not making it uh, in the economy or their parents come from, they come from poor families. They feel oppressed. They, they're looking for a, a message that, 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 that will give them some sort of uh, confidence, feeling of superiority. It's all very nefarious. It is played as nefarious. And the whole cool thing is that they have nuclear weapons. Red Skull has secured nuclear weapons. A, a, an aside, if you ever read Heroes of War number one, there's a three-page interlude where a character named Agent Hunt slips away. He is our government operative, our shield undercover, and he is drawn the way that I would draw Tom Cruise as Agent Hunt on the cover of the Mission Impossible Marvel adaptation that I did uh, at Tom Cruise's request. I had been doing some great work with Tom, and he requested that I do the cover for that. And uh, and so Marvel put me on the cover per Tom Cruise's re uh, request. I love Mission Impossible. It came out that summer, that spring. And so Agent Hunt is the one who wanders down the stairs and sees the nukes. And before he can radio it in, he is killed. And you watch this occur. And again, uh, I kept his face in shadow. We barely see it. But the moniker is very much that um, this is an impossible mission that does not go well for Agent Hunt. And it was my little nod to my love of Tom to doing Mission Impossible, the cover that summer, little, 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 uh, you know, uh, deep cut, deep dive there to an Easter egg in the pages of Heroes Reborn number one. But again, that shows you that the government is on to what's happening with the World Party and uh, that the World Party is looking to amass an army of these disgruntled youth and empower them. And in fact, they have nuclear weapons and they are going to nuke a major American city. And that is all part of Red Skull's return to the limelight. And I had the best time drawing the Red Skull. I had the best time drawing Masterman, Steve Rogers. He's in an explosion in the first issue. His his uh, jacket and, and shirt is torn off and he's sitting, he's standing there in tattered clothes with that gleaming shield. And unfortunately, Wilson dies shortly after giving him the shield. But Nick Fury uh, is on the case because now Steve Rogers is a huge problem. He's never been awakened with the shield before in all these years that they have mind wiped him and decommissioned him, restarted his life over. Um, because again, they honor all that Steve Rogers had done for them in World War II. He was a great hero, but they kind of let, let him down softly in these new existences with these creepy life model decoys that you'll find out exactly how this all goes down as you read deeper into this issue.
But this was my story from the outset. This lost, uh, kind of, uh, you know, betrayed uh, super soldier that served us, but went against us on a giant policy issue, told, tells Eisenhower in issue three, we go to the flashback. He believes that it is excessive what we are going to do and, and drop that nuke. And, and, and Cap believes that the Japanese are going to surrender anyway. There's other options, but they believe that this great show of forth, force and power is the way that America should roll. And Cap says he is going to denounce it publicly. And that is why Nick Fury uh, had to de decommission Cap in the beginning. And then he reawakens him. You know, he confronts him once he is reawakened and officially puts him back in as Cap. And the only reason Cap accepts this duty is to take down the World Party. It's killed Wilson. Wilson gave him the shield back. He has a purpose. Um, Wilson has a son in the Air Force named Sam, who we're going to learn, and he's going to get a blood transfusion, become the new Falcon. Uh, Ricky Barnes is going to follow her brother into this creepy, uh, you know, uh, rally that he's going to. She gets involved in the action. She becomes the new Bucky. This was the romp of my lifetime. I was focused. Uh, it, I, I was doing the math the other day. I think this, my entire uh, stay on the book is about 200 pages. Um, I had these 200 pages uh, in my mind, very detailed, how I was going to roll this out. I don't encounter or cross over with any of the other Marvel comics in the Heroes Reborn line for the first five issues uh, whatsoever. I just needed to tell the story. I needed the space to build Steve's story, his backstory, his dilemma, build Ricky's story, introduce Nick Fury. The one thing that, that would unite our books and see if this sounds familiar um, in a way that had not been done before was Nick Fury was the great kind of recruiter. He joins the Avengers and Cap in connection with the Fantastic Four and Heroes Reborn, uh, with Tony Stark and Iron Man. This is all a precursor of what you are eventually going to see on screen. You may have encountered this in the pages of the Ultimates, but I assure you, five years prior to this, it was the tenant of our Heroes Reborn uh, storyline, that Nick Fury was the connecting tissue putting everyone together and uniting everybody in this cause because of the obvious ties he has to this global intelligence network and that he can have the info and the data on everybody. It's always important in a story to have a character that serves that purpose. And he, in fact, served that purpose. So that is the story elements. And I would, uh, as you'll see in further episodes, because I got to lay down the story for you first. And I got to tell you how proud I am of this story. And I got to tell you how freaky that the story that I told in 1996 is 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 reminiscent of a lot of what's in the headlines uh, with with uh, what's been going on in our country these last several years. Um, you know the white supremacy aspect, this you know Nazi stuff. It's just it's all weird. It's creepy. It feels ahead of its time. It, it, it's it's been in print since 1996. It, it it provided a great foil, a great story for me. But I, in the in the in the in the, the face of all the storms that you're going to hear about that come along the way. I never wavered. I got up and I did this book and I did 200 pages of my contributions to Heroes Reborn. 52 pages of cap number one. Uh, now we're going to get back to why that 52 pages matters in just a, a minute here. But the story that I had in my head, I was going to tell come what may, nothing was going to stop me. It was going to take five issues, maybe six. I did my six issues. That was part of the goal. Following me, I was going to work with 
the amazing Stephen Platt, who had been working with me almost exclusively for four years. He blew up on Moon Knight he, at Marvel Comics. He got some immediate heat. I reached out to him. I made him an offer he could not refuse. Uh, a giant... Uh, I was very generous. The reason I, I talk about this is the one thing you were not going to find is anybody who said that I was not ridiculously generous. Whether it was guilt or an excitement that I could actually pay you what I feel like you deserved, I did it in the 90s. And I, I was generous. I paid, probably overpaid, so many people. I, I paid inkers maybe 200 over what they were getting at Marvel and DC. I paid pencilers several hundreds of dollars over. I paid rookies uh, starting rates of $600 and $800 a page, which is insane, but it was fun, and the work they did for me was great. And in this instance, I'm thinking of Jeff Matsuda, who started with me, who was had, had such a beautiful style. I wanted him to be so committed to extreme, and he, was, he could do a book in 10 days, 22-page comic. And in those days, this just wasn't heard of, but he was prolific. And so I paid him an exorbitant page rate. Within five weeks of Jeff Matsuda at Extreme Studios, he said, Rob, I bought a car and I just put a down payment on a house because um, $800 a page times, you know, 40 pages a month that he could produce, produced in 1993, a giant payday for him and good credit and, 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 and a cash flow that didn't stop for many, many years. Guys like Stephen Platt, I paid similarly. Stephen had done an epic run on profit for me, and he wanted to join with me on Captain America. I was going to do the first six issues, six issues of Cap. He was going to follow and do the next six issues. So your 12 issues of Captain America would have been six by Liefeld, six by Platt, and that would have been, in my mind, the very best uh, creative experience Captain America could have received at that time. And we were set to go while I was doing my section, middle of my section, probably right around issue two or three. Stephen was commissioned to start drawing his. It involved Russians. It involved UFOs. It was more, again, of our X-File, Philip K. Dick kind of agenda that we were pursuing. So creatively, uh, we were rolling. I'll get to the Avengers um, possibly in the next episode in more detail. I brought my friend Jim Valentino in. Jim was an old, old, old friend of mine, one of the first professional connections I made. Uh, Jim was like family to me for so long. I still love Jim. I, I have such great affection for him. Jim's a great storyteller. He was a natural to bring on and work with um, on the Avengers as we prepared to launch it. Uh, there's something that's going to occur within all of this, which is my divorce from Image Comics, which is very interesting because I'm going to throw dates and 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 put you know, some data in front of you via letters I received from Mr. McFarlane, uh, uh, all sorts of different exchanges with me and Image that don't support the version that you've heard. The version that I have, the truth, is supported by dates and catalogs that arrived in your stores that could not have been assembled um, without these dates that that, that, that could, you can't diminish those. It's the kind of stuff that, that doesn't get the attention it deserves, but you cannot take away that something that happened in May that I initiated, I then cannot be unwound and said, well, this is a decision we came to in, in August because, because Rob, you know, made us mad. No, 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 no. I was leaving Image Comics. I had had a resignation letter that was with Larry Martyr, the publisher, for over a year. But that notwithstanding, I had moved a line of my books away 
from Imogen into another division of mine called Maximum Press. And to get stuff in a catalog, remember this for a future reference, to get stuff in a catalog, you have 30 days to get it into that catalog. Then that catalog arrives in 30 days. There is a 60, maybe if you're lucky, 45-day uh, uh, window that you can manage. It's it's no less than 45. It's no more than 60. But it, it it's the minimum 45. Most of the times, it's a 60-day. You, you hand it in. In 30 days, they print it. They It gets it into your hands. The information that was in there was not something that was put in the day before, the week before. It was put in months before. So what happens with Jim Valentino is he does not uh, go much further because of all of the calamity and chaos that will surround the image divorce, me leaving image comics that occurs right when Heroes Reborn is launching. But this is not an accident, my friend. This is not an accident. I have alluded to the fact that Heroes Reborn was very upsetting to everyone else at Image Comics. And for the life of me, I'm not quite certain. I have some ideas. I told you that Todd turned down the idea to do Spider-Man again and to do something along those lines. He turned Marvel down hardcore. Um, he was very upset when he, heard, he learned that Jim and myself were going to go forth on this. He was very upset. Todd had taken on the mantle in 1994, 1995. He had become somewhat of what I call the scolder-in-chief. And to paint a picture, we would have a meeting, whether it was at Todd's place or when they flew out to my place, or we always moved to different, you know, meetings. One time at Wildstorm, uh, Todd would eventually stand up and walk around the room where we were all seated at our comic book Knights of the Round Table. Uh, so you got Mark Silvestri, myself, Larry Marta, the publisher. Uh, you got, you got, uh, you got um, Eric Larson, Jim Valentino, and Todd would stand up and walk around and scold us, how we weren't doing stuff as good as he was, that we weren't shipping on a regular basis. Retailers ask all the time why we weren't, you know, performing as well as Todd was for the retailers. Scold, 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 scold. And I would look over and Jim would be rolling his eyes and resting his head in his arm, just kind of going, I can't believe we have to listen to more of this shit. Scolder in chief was what Todd had become. It was where he was comfortable Spawn had um, a very successful publishing schedule uh, uh, right out of the gate and had absolutely um, made us look even tardier than we were. And believe me, we were tardy. There's no passing the buck. Our books were late. And Todd clung to that as something that was unforgivable and that we could never make up ground for. So at this point, wait a second, you guys are going to go do stuff for Marvel? What do you mean? Because that takes the narrative completely away from him. Now it's outside of image and it's with arrival. And, and here's where you have to understand when we all left to form image comics, if it wasn't clear immediately, I would hope that you go back and examine it. Everyone left for a different reason. I'll tell you my reason. I had watched Cable and Deadpool and Domino and Shatterstar and all these characters, even Gideon. I mean, GW Bridge, they all became toys within 10 months of publication in major big box stores like Walmart and Target and in Toy City and in Toys R Us and in KB Toys. And there wasn't just one cable toy. There was umpteen coming. And I think eventually in the 90s, you got like 10 to 11 to 12 different variations on cable. You got four to five different Deadpools. Um, Garrison Kane got multiple action figures, two six inch, one 12 inch. 
uh, Strife, all of these characters. I figured that I owed it to myself to follow up the next wave of Rob Liefeld creations, stuff that I was um, offering up that, again, just so you know, I knew the deal. When I gave him to Marvel, you look at it and you go, okay, so roughly it works out to 5%. That's the contract in 1990. Um, 5% of something is better than 5% of nothing. And what if 5% is is on a character like Wolverine that takes, you know, the world by storm. And, and, and in my 20s, I'm 21, 20, 2021 when I'm doing these characters, you know, they could, they could, provide for my family for a lifetime and they have and they did but so next time around maybe i should own 100 percent, and that was the idea going in to starting image comics the next step i create because i clearly have a connection from hawk and dove to new mutants to x-force uh my books sell i have an audience um i've i've, I've got the second best-selling comic book of all time truth be told at that time i thought that record would fall i did not think it would stand for uh 30 years when the calendar clicks over this year in 1991, X-Force is number two for 30 years. Jim with his X-Men is number one. I thought they would throw enough gimmicks and covers and, I mean, all sorts of, uh, you know, distractions to, to get a book that sold higher. Um, if it eventually goes to number three, that's great. I, I, I don't see it happening. I think those five million copies are um, now, in hindsight, uh, that's a huge benchmark. Those characters in X-Force did not exist prior to coming out of my head. Remember this. Those characters did not exist. My 5 million copies of X-Force, those characters on those covers are characters that I created that did not exist a few months prior. And I had only been in the business for about three and a half years. I knew that I had a connection with the fans. The fans had been great to me. Um, going through the garage and rummaging through so much this summer as I've, you know, gone through some old boxes and photos and seen contracts and all the stuff that that makes her observations so fun. I see the Polaroids, the pictures of when New Mutants was coming out and how every store I went to, there was more people and more people. The electricity was there. The New Mutants didn't have anything going for it, but for me, there was no hot character. I'm not boasting. I'm telling you because I was desperate. I was desperate to make a difference with my characters and with my art, and I was desperate to keep up with Wolverine and Spider-Man. So when I go to do Image Comics, I am feeding a machine now that I will own 100%. If I want to give it away, if I want to make mistakes with it, whatever, that's my decision. I believe that guys like Eric Larson and Jim Valentino were following in that mold as well. I think a guy like Mark Silvestri was like, well, maybe I shouldn't turn this down because this may turn out to be something special and I don't want to miss out. Jim Lee was the last one to join us because Marvel had been very good to him and they had made him all sorts of offers to stay. And I think Jim on his own is not as, uh, 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 I don't think he maximizes all of his gifts um, when he's on his own. He likes being part of a corporate structure. We've seen that with Marvel and then now almost a 20-year relationship with DC. His um, independent dalliance was short-lived and I don't think it was something that he looked, he he truly enjoyed. I never truly saw him enjoying it uh, in the same way that he enjoyed the X office or Batman and everything that DC had done. But I think Jim also uh, jumped on board because he said the train is leaving the station. And, and if I don't jump on now, I'll be left behind. And I, and I, and, and, and Jim Lee is so talented that if it goes wrong, he can just jump back and restart. And just so you know, the image comics thing, that was the prevailing notion. If we screwed up when we crashed and burned, we'd find work again somewhere, Marvel, DC, whatever. Todd McFarlane was very clear uh, and said it to us multiple times 
his leaving image was kind of a statement against Marvel. He wanted Marvel to be hurt by his leaving, to be to suffer. He wanted to uh, he, he wanted to kind of exact this bit of vengeance. His story that he tells that Marvel never gave him a watch to say thank you for his service, the way that his father got a watch at his factory. Todd tells this story repeatedly, and it really has some bite. And he really he once he stepped away from Marvel and they became a competitor. He saw them as someone to beat, someone to, uh, you know, to, to, to achieve above, okay? So the idea that Jim and I are doing this with Marvel pisses him off. And if you happen to have been there uh, in the summer of 1996, so this is a few months before the books get released. Heroes Reborn is coming in the fall of 1996. Let's say this is late July. Let's say this is early August. If I go, so I am the t-shirt and Captain America Heroes Reborn is the posters, the uh, the booklet and the t-shirt for that year. So I should just go grab that and look at that. It'll give me exactly what the date was. Um, the cool thing was we were sitting at a movie theater waiting to see a movie that year, my wife and I at the AMC locally and across the screen was my Captain America. Uh, uh, this original shot that I had done for the t-shirt for the, um, cover of the program book of him crouching low, lifting up his shield. And it said, you know, San Diego Comic-Con, whatever the dates are, you know, don't miss it. So, so it was cool that, that, that I'm, I'm seeing my art in, in between as part of the trailers, as part of the commercial advertising on movie, movie screens. So it's, it's, it's funny that I don't have the exact date, whether it was July or August, it was either again, late July, early August. But we were assembled, as Image often did, on a panel because, you guys, I was still doing 20 books a month through my Extreme Studios, which fed into the overall Image pipeline. I contributed to Image Comics' Image Comics giant, uh, you know, market percentage. And we're going to get into this more in the next one. We really, there is so much to talk about Heroes Reborn, and I really have to set all of the table here for it to make. Um, as much sense and to resonate as much as it's going to. Uh, but at this uh, summer 96, tensions are at the highest. Um, everyone has boiled over, I believe. To finish off an earlier thought, Eric Larson and Mark Silvestri were the only two who were standing outside of Heroes Reborn and by uh, their own choice. I don't know. I don't know if they were asked. Actually, I, I do remember Mark had inquired about being a part of it. And I remember being in the room with the publisher of Marvel at the time, Jerry Calabrese, and the executive, Joe King, two words, Joe King, not joking, Joe King, like Joseph King. Uh, they had come up with this entire idea and were um, working for Ron Perlman and putting together these the, the, the Marvel publishing plan. And they had said, what do you guys think about Mark Silvestri? Now, Mark and Jim had had a divorce of sorts. Mark had left... I, literally like the middle of the night. Uh, Jim didn't know it was coming. Coming, We were all called the next day. Mark was part of Wildstorm when Image launched. He moved from Los Angeles to San Diego. He had a... Uh, Cyberforce was launched from uh, San Diego from the Wildstorm offices. Scott Williams had jumped in to start inking. Mark Scott normally was only inking Jim at the time, but jumped over and helped Mark out. Um... That they even crossed their books over. Cyberforce and Wildstorm had some some crossovers. Then Mark started to expand his line the same way that we 
all were expanding our lines as I was doing with Brigade and Bloodstrike and Blood Wolf and everything, Blood Metitle and Supreme and uh, New Men and Glory. So Mark had started to spin off his line of books and uh, Strike Force and, and Ripclaw. And I don't know what happened. I wasn't there. We just got the call the next day uh, in, 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 you know, sometime in 95 that Mark had relocated and taken a giant chunk of the town that had joined him down there. Guys like Brandon Peterson, guys like Joe Benitez, guys like Dave Finch. These are some talented dudes. They were all one day under the Wildstorm banner working at Wildstorm and were now in Los Angeles setting up shop in Santa Monica, and Mark had started his own label called Top Cow. And he had hats, and he was very excited about this new uh, label and this new publishing entity that he was going to start as his division that would feed books into our giant label, which was Image Comics. But Jim was not happy about it. There was bad tension between the two of them. Um, I think artistically they were always rivals. Uh, I have gone on record. I believe Mark is the best artist among us. Period. End of story. No one in the image unit draws better than Mark. Um, if you think that, I, I could sit with you for a few hours. I'm not sure I could change your mind if you've decided that one of the others, including myself, is someone that you favor. But Mark can indeed, male figure, female figure, uh, he has a greater uh, control of what he is drawing. He is He does it as, as easily as... And, and as fluently as I've ever seen anyone draw, his people are so beautiful, men and women. And over time, he has just um, aged like fine wine. His renderings, so much of what he does, everyone else, including myself, jumps on, uh, immediately wants to imitate because he has so many tricks up his sleeve. But he is by far, in a way, the finest illustrator among us. Uh, Jim Valentino believes that. Eric Larson believes that. I know that Todd McFarlane believes that. I don't, I'm not sure that Jim believes that, and which is why they are rivals. Um, and I think the response that Mark was getting to his own work was off the chain. And who knows if Mark had been part of Heroes Reborn. I just remember when Joe King said, Hey, uh, you know, Mark Silvestri inquired about... No! And Jim put his hand up in like a chopping motion, just like off the table, like swiping. No! Mark is, is not involved. Under no circumstances. And I knew, well, okay. Um, I don't need to weigh in on this. Jim is pretty strong on it. Jim and I are partners in this endeavor. And that is the only time I heard Mark uh, brought up as being part of Heroes Reborn. It was taken. He was immediately dismissed by Jim. No way. No. And, and it was that it, Jim sat up. He had, I mean, his spine tightened. And again, that, that slash of the of the hand. No way. Not happening. And, and Joe and Jerry, who were actually very casually sitting on my couches in Fullerton were like, okay, whatever. Like, we don't want to, we don't want to, you know, ruin everything. We don't want to ruin the vibe. Uh, we don't want to disrupt what's going on. It, it, it's clearly, we, we felt it was okay to bring it up, but it's not something that you guys are into. So we are taking it off the table and we were on to the next thing. But that summer at Comic-Con, the image guys, we get together and have panels. And we were in one of the bigger uh, panel rooms, not Hall H, but the, the the room that you put everybody in upstairs that isn't as big as Hall H, but still seats 2,000 people. Okay? And uh, so it's Todd, myself, Mark, Jim, Valentino, Larson. We all go. We get introduced. We're 
yucking it up. And then it opens up to the question from the fans uh, to where they stand up and ask us questions on the stage. We don't know where the questions are coming. Where they're not pre-negotiated. It's literally as pure as you've seen it. First two guys, their questions are to Jim and myself about Heroes Reborn. Todd, I am as further away, as far away from Todd as uh, you can be on the table. I think Jim is more in the center. And with the second question, Todd reaches over. If you were there, you witnessed this. Grabs the mic and goes, Ah, uh, let me uh, remind everyone this is an Image Comics panel. We are here to talk about the Image Comics. And the Image Comics alone. Uh, I, I, I know some of you are excited about uh, this thing Rob and Jim are doing with Marvel. I'm pretty sure they got a panel later on and you can direct your questions to them there. We are here to speak about Image Comics. It had fire. It had passion. The edge was there. It was not comfortable. And I was like, whoo, uh, this is a hot topic. And, uh, you know, again, the fans in the audience, their eyes got big as saucers. Like, oh boy, if it wasn't obvious that uh, Heroes Reborn was tweaking some people at the home office, it was then. If you were there, you saw it, you witnessed it, it wasn't pleasant. And it was a precursor for everything that would come. And uh, Heroes Reborn... I showed up at that convention with a uh, free Captain America number one preview issue. Now, most preview issues that we had been accustomed to doing since 1992, and when I say we, I mean industry-wide, they were black and white, they were ash cans, they were preview copies. I decided, because I knew that I needed to really step up and show that Captain America was something that you, as a retailer want to be involved in. I showed up and I printed almost all 50 pages in color, but with no word balloons, with no script, with nothing to indicate uh, what you were seeing. They were colored. They were beautiful. They had been finished long before San Diego, well in preparation of the September launch date. I was into issue two at this time, possibly even starting issue three. Um, issue three is what I am drawing when all the image craziness goes down. So that, that is, uh, that is my, I, I just very much remember I was drawing and I was like, I am not going to not give these pages and panels a hundred percent of my commitment while all this chaos is swirling around me. It is meant to distract me. It is not going to, I love Captain America number three. There is not a single issue of my cap job that I am not super duper ridiculously proud of, fond of, revisit often. And one thing I forgot to mention that the, the new Captain America heroes reborn arrived in stores last week. There is a new edition of it that arrived. And uh, and, and that edition uh, was solicited months ago. And I forgot it was even coming out. And so a couple of my friends had said, hey, Rob, are you aware that this, uh, that, 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 you know, that Marvel is doing this brand new, uh, you know, Captain America Heroes Reborn edition? And I'm going to, right now, I'm going to tell you how it was solicited. So when you saw it in the in the catalog, when it, when it showed up for to be solicited in the June catalog to arrive in August, it says Captain America: Heroes Reborn, new printing, trade paperback, writer artist Rob Liefeld, more Rob Liefeld. Here here's how Marvel markets this umpteenth printing of Captain America: Heroes, Heroes Reborn in 1996. The hottest creators of the day teamed up to reimagine and reinvigorate Marvel's 
greatest heroes. The Avengers and Fantastic Four were reborn with bold new looks in a brave new world. Their origins re-envisioned with a raw vitality and contemporary sensibility. Steve Rogers seems to have found the life of his dreams, but when the Red Skull returns, can Captain America reawaken to protect an entire new generation? Cap must stave off a nuclear nightmare with the help of Nick Fury, the Falcon, and Ricky Barnes, the spectacular all-new Bucky. But is Cap ready to face the truth of his past and stand up to the insidious? Master Man. Woo! That's a tall order, baby. I could not have been more excited. So this is in stand. This is back in stores. It's fresh. So when I say revisit it, I don't have to get an old copy. They just, they just, they did this 10 years ago. And then the Heroes Are Born Omnibus came out last year. Then there's a Rob Liefeld Omnibus that reprints as part of its thousand pages, my Captain America that came out last October. So this is material that gets constantly you know, reprinted. And if you want to grab it off Comixology, I highly recommend you can get the digital version right now. If you're listening to this, boom, hit that button. It comes instantly. I love Comixology. I love having my comics in print. I love my bookshelf, but there is no doubt having them in digital as an addendum is a great way to go. And so this is reissued this week and I love this stuff. And I was doing again, issue two around San Diego that year and issue one, I brought in a preview with a brand new cover of Cap with his hands on his hips, different than the regular uh, Captain America number one. And you could basically flip through it and go, oh my gosh, the entire issue's done. That was the message I wanted to send. This book is done. It is ready for you to receive. Don't sleep on it. Matter of fact, one of the biggest chains in comic books uh, located in, in, in Chicago uh, had come to me and uh, Graham Crackers, Graham Crackers Comics, they had a chain in the Midwest. They had said, Rob, we'll take all of these off your hands. These are these will do spectacular when we get home. If we, can, we had no idea you were bringing these. If we can grab these and sell them, uh, we'll take whatever you, you know, didn't sell here. Let's work out a deal. We'll take them back to the Midwest and we will, you know, we have a an audience that is ready for this. Of course, they're going to come back. You don't, we didn't advertise that it was coming out, that we were going to have this, this volume of preview, but Captain America, I am so excited. The story that I've told you, I am so excited to share this brave new take, this mind wipe, Steve Rogers, this kind of uh, lost, this, this kind of man without a country, this sci-fi take. Uh, I showed up, I showed up with it in a big way. And the reason I'm telling you that is I met a man named Joseph Loeb III at WonderCon earlier that year in April. And he wandered up to me. I did not know Jeff Loeb. I had never met Jeff Loeb. I didn't know what he looked like. I had seen his name because he was writing all of my creations back at Marvel. And I continued to follow X-Force and Cable. And there was an, a young Cable called X-Man, young Nathaniel, uh, who's now Nathaniel Gray instead of Nathaniel Summers, but has the white streak in his hair, the glowing eye. He just has a different trajectory in regards to his character, but Jeff Loeb was writing all the Rob Liefeld stuff. He comes up to me. He sees my Captain America poster behind me at WonderCon in San Francisco, in Oakland. Uh, in, in, and he says to me, he says, hey, we're looking forward to this. And I go, well, thanks, buddy. How are you? He goes, I'm Jeff Loeb. I go, Jeff Loeb, I love your cable. I love your X-Force. I love everything you're doing. Oh my gosh. And, uh, and, 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 and we immediately hit it off. And then he says, Hey man, I don't know what you got going on with that Captain America, but I'd love to, 
to jump uh jump on board uh you know what you what you're doing i've I've read about it, it sounds exciting everybody in in comics is buzzling is buzzing and uh so i was uh i was like intrigued I thought Jeff was a really talented guy never met him never heard of him i mean never heard him speak never saw him was following his work for the better part of a year at this point and now he's offering to come on board well the guy who I had picked a script the book was a guy who was doing profit for me named Chuck Dixon. You guys may know Chuck Dixon. He's a very accomplished writer, very talented guy. I had planned on him coming on board and scripting Captain America over the story that I told you that I drew drew independent with no input. Again, when I do stories and it has me on the story, that's my story. Never in my history do I consult with whoever scripts over me. I do the story, then I tell the scripter, whoever that may be, afterwards what is transpiring. The scripting slows down the process of me making comics. I'm not the fastest guy in the world. So in order to do that, I have people do the dialogue, the captions, and the word balloons over my story, which the story of any comic, uh, the plot is the character interaction, the consequences. It is the story structure. It, it deals with, uh, with the conflicts, the direction of the characters. That is all what the story does. Script is dialogue and captions that reflect the intent of the story. Works with a lot of great guys that script. I work with a ton of them. I told Jeff that if he was to come on, you know, it would be in the capacity as a scripter. When I told him that Chuck Dixon already had the gig uh, at, at WonderCon, Jeff, he's, you guys know Jeff. He's got swagger. He's got swagger. There's no shortage of swagger in this man. I love it. And he was like, uh, you know, if you want to do better, give me a call. Well. Chuck Dixon had given me some notes in regards to what he thought of what I was doing on Cap. And Matt Hawkins came in and gave them to me and said, I'm not sure you're going to like these. And I threw them in the trash after I read them. And I figured Chuck and I are not going to work any longer. Chuck did not have a contract with Marvel. I did. And I was the one looking to involve Chuck and carry on the fun that we were having on Profit, the, the work he was doing for me at Extreme. But we just didn't see eye to eye. Um, I, I wanted to keep it in the direction that I was going. So now I have to tell Marvel that my original guy is not there. I'm contracting him, but I need to always be upfront and let them know who I'm working with. Well, before I do that, I figured it'd be better if I had a replacement. So I pulled out the card that Jeff Loeb had given me with his number on it, and I called him up. Jeff lives up in Hollywood, uh, about 45 minutes from me in Orange County. And I called him up and I said, Jeff, now this is probably June, late June, maybe early July of 1996. I said, Jeff, I would love for you to join me. I want to take you up on your offer. He's like, what happened? What happened to Chuck? I said, ah, we just don't see eye to eye. And I've got these pages and I need to turn the book in. And I'd love to talk to you about what we can do together. Um, and I want to send you the issue. He's like, send it up. I said, yeah, it'll be, it'll be really great to see what you think of this stuff. He goes, what do you got? I go, I've got the whole issue. He goes, how many pages? I said, it's 52 pages. And he's like, okay, kind of snigger. Okay, yeah, go ahead. You send those up to me. I guess it was going around that I didn't have anything done. Okay, this is the best part. And uh, uh, again, because you're doing it in isolation, and I'm not showing any of these pages. I'm certainly not showing them to Marvel New York, 
who has been very obvious in that they are rooting against this. I should have said that at the beginning. The one thing that you have to remember is Marvel very blatantly, and again, those editors that contacted me after the first episode as we were walking through this, and Jim Kruger, who I said out loud, who we interviewed for Marvel's fan magazine, Marvel Vision, he contacted me afterwards too and said, Rob, you got it all right. That's exactly what was going on. I mean, it's hysterical. Like, you just have to understand Marvel was dead set. Marvel Editorial wanted this to tank, and there were plans afoot, and trust me, they were good plans. There were good plans. When, when this all comes together in episodes three and four, you're gonna, your mind is going to be blown. It's just blown by everything that occurs. But uh, I am staying the course. I'm not showing anybody anything. I'm keeping it, it lock solid. So I guess that Jeff didn't believe that I had anything done. We, I immediately tell my uh, editor, Eric Stevenson, who is at the helm, one of our chief editors at, Eric, at Extreme, currently now a partner and publisher of Image Comics. Love Eric. Love Matt Hawkins. Love talking about those guys. We had the best time together. I have nothing but the best memories and best times with those guys. And they were all hands on deck at this time. I said, get Xeroxes. 11 by 17, I want them impressive. Full size, 11 by 17 Xeroxes to Jeff Loeb. Let's courier them up for this afternoon. So this is probably like 1 o'clock. We get them copied, put them in a FedEx box. We get it couriered up. Jeff Loeb calls me around 6 o'clock. 6 o'clock that, that day and says, You weren't kidding. And I said, What are you talking about? He goes, I got your package. It's heavy. So I'm like, what's in here? I open it up. This entire book is done. It's finished. I said, that's right. I told you I wanted you to script over Captain America. And I was sending you the book. He goes, can I be honest? I, I got to tell you, I've heard stories. And uh, I thought, yeah, okay. Full, full issue. Okay, Rob. You're, you're going to send me the full issue? Sure. I was expecting a bunch of scribbles and stick figures and stuff that you had yet to draw. I, I got to tell you, Robert, I, uh, I wasn't expecting this. And, and I'm impressed. This is impressive. So uh, I got your notes. On everything, and uh, I'm gonna read these over, and and let, then let's let, let's talk, and we'll, you can walk me through each page, and that's what we did, and that's what I did with every script I ever worked with. I would provide the notes. Here's what's maybe not being connected on these panels, and then I talk to them, and I tell them, well, this is what I was thinking when I had this conversation, and this is what I was thinking, and this is definitely what Wilson is saying here to Steve when he hands him the shield, all this stuff, and I give it to Jeff, and he gives me the best script I've ever had in my entire life, especially that opening sequence uh, when Cap is having the dream and uh, Jeff Loeb insisted we use his partner in crime, Richard Starkings, and Richard Starkings was far and away the finest letterer of the age and when that stuff came back dialogued and captioned and all the cool little logos, Jeff put his polish on this. Now, here's the deal. I, I normally work with scripters and they're in, in the 90s, man, you could not believe how many people wanted to script your work because they wanted that that opportunity or that money. It was one or the other, a launch pad or a payday, okay? That's fine. That's what, you know, why not? People need to get paid. People need to participate. But back in the late 80s, early 90s, as the artists were, you know, coming into our own, like myself and Jim Lee and Wills Portacio, we were being deluged by guys like Scott Liddell. And, and, and Scott would deluge me constantly. I like Scott. The Scott, I, have, I haven't seen Scott in a decade, but the Scott that I knew back then was a really creative guy and really talented guy, but he called me all the time. Total, just pest, pest, pest. We should work together. I should do this. I hear you turn, turn the mutants into, into X-Force. And 
I'm going to tell you, it's, if Scott was not uh, at the pest that he was, I would have thrown everything. I just, can't, I just couldn't be bothered as much as that guy. He, he always had a story he wanted me to draw or an idea that he thought we should do and collaborate on. But when I'm doing New Mutants uh, and, and taking that gig, I needed someone who just was going to give me the least amount of uh, kind of resistance and pester me the least. And if Scott wasn't such a pest, I would have chosen him because it really came down to uh, a, a really, he was one of the finalists when, when Marvel said, well, which one of these guys do you want to join you on the script duties on New Mutants, which would obviously become X-Force. And Scott was, man, he was, he, he was a finalist. He was, he was the silver ribbon, the silver medal. But uh, Scott was, and the reason I'm telling you about being a pest, there's a purpose. He pestered Jim Lee all the way into Heroes Reborn. So now we have a guy who is writing for Marvel. He is going to be scripting Iron Man. And once Scott is in the door, I did not know that Scott and Loeb were buddies. So Loeb getting in the door too, it was like the two, you know, the L boys now had the L boys in the writers. Okay. Lobdell and Loeb, L boys, Lee, Liefeld, L boys. So all the L boys were, were, were united now because Scott burrowed into Jim. You gotta, gotta, gotta let me be part of this. Come on, man. I'd be great. You know, I know what to do. It'd be great. Um, one of the guys that I heard from in the last week since I did the original episode on Heroes Reborn is how mad we were that that, that Scott Lobdell had, had, was playing both sides. Look, Scott was doing the X-Men at the time, and now he's on Iron Man. He's in the Heroes Reborn world. And you got to believe this is Jeff Loeb walking up to me in April going, hey, man, if you want to do better, give me a call. And you know what? Jeff stepped up. Jeff scripted. Golly, two dozen projects with me over the years. But here's the thing. Scripting used... Then it became like you, you, this word called script bitch got, got passed. Oh, you're just a script bitch. You're just a script bitch. And it got demeaned. No, you needed to be the full script writer. Well, that didn't work out so well for comics from, from my perspective. I, I, I do what I do, but but in, in, the, in the larger view. A lot of guys who should be writing screenplays broke into comics and started dictating entire 22-page talk fests that would put me to absolute sleep. But I digress. The bottom line is, let me tell you the Hollywood version of the script bitch. I've been in the room with some of my ridiculously successful Hollywood friends. I will not say a couple of their names, but they do polishes for millions of dollars on these screenplays. I was in one of their offices when the agent called. He put them on speaker. This is in the early 2000s. Yeah, late 80s, late 90s, early 2000s. Hey, can you do a polish on the latest Jim Carrey? Yeah, they'll pay you $2 million for three days. And if you just do the polish, uh, give it some dialogue tweaks, just, just pump up the dialogue. You know, uh, they'll pay your rate. You up for it? And my buddy's like, yeah, heck yeah, I'm up for it. And uh, another time I was there, hey, they want you to polish Charlie's Angels too. They'll pay your rate, $3 million. You have it for, for five days. Just do, a, just do a punch up on all the lines. Maybe put a few few jokes in there. Being the quote-unquote script bitch in Hollywood means millions of dollars, prestige. Your agents love you. But it got demoted in comics along the way because some of these guys were bringing in big coin. Jeff Loeb drove a hard bargain. I paid him a good deal. Some quote-unquote of the script bitches uh, made hundreds of thousands of dollars in their association with me. Uh, it was a good gig. Scripting over... A uh, guy who has genuine heat and commercial sales is a good thing. It's never a bad thing. But it became this kind of uh, dark cloud 
Oh, you can't be scripting over artists. That's that's not that's not a real writer. That's bullshit. That's that's not true. Tell that to all these guys getting paid two million dollars uh, for for five days worth of work, punching up dialogue and jokes on big giant Hollywood screenplays. They throw money at this stuff because they want it polished in the best possible way. It's exactly what we ask when we ask scripters to do dialogue and captions on our work. Anyway, so San Diego, there it is. I colored those pages. We just didn't put any of that Jeff Loeb script and dialogue on it. So we wanted to entice you. I got retailers tripping over themselves to get this book. This is about to launch. Tensions at Image are high because this is the most resented uh, project that we have ever uh, had since we started Image. And because of the platform it is providing Jim and myself and the money that it is pumping into us, it is threatening to some of these Image guys who can't pick and scold and, uh, and it's just an interesting tempest that is about to hit. And the people who hired Jim and I, they are excited. They are excited for this to launch. The numbers are coming in. They're big. Avengers, as a matter of fact, becomes the number one Avengers of all time. My Avengers, Heroes Reborn, because in September when these books hit, I hit with 70 plus pages. The 20 plus I did for Avengers, plus the 52 that I did for Captain America. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. That is for next time. Join me. Episode 3 is going to get crazy. Heroes Reborn continues. Do not miss it. This is Tuesday's episode of the week. Come back Friday. Do not miss this. I am on social media. At Robert Liefeld on Twitter. With the blue check. Full name. At Robert Liefeld. That is me. On Instagram. At Rob Liefeld. With the blue check. Find me. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I will always be happy to interact with you guys, talk everything that's going on. I love revisiting this era of comics. It is so exciting. Thank you for joining me on Rob Observations. You know the deal. I need you to take care of yourself and to stay safe, and we will talk again soon. 